Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Well, thank you, Wes. Uh, great to hear about all this going on this past year in our, our, our missions ministry. It's a great, actually a great segue into a little bit of what we're going to be talking about here this morning as we continue our series on the book of Revelation. And as you know, of course, we've, we've mentioned a couple of times, we are in the third week of Advent, and our theme for today is joy. And as we're talking about joy this morning, I want to begin by asking you a question just to briefly think about this morning. When was the last time you, you can say that you experienced joy uh, in a way that you define it? Okay. So uh, maybe it was this morning, maybe it was when you woke up this morning and you realized, I'm going to get to hear about the book of Revelation today. And that just gave you great joy as you realized that you came to that realization. Uh, maybe it was this past week, something that happened in your life. Uh, maybe for you, it's been a while since you can say, I experienced uh, a moment or an experience of joy in my life. Um, I ask you that question and I ask you also with the caveat of as you would define it. Uh, because I think as we think about it, it, it helps us to, to illustrate a little bit about how elusive at times joy can be, and at the same time, how much we know that we absolutely need it, how much we realize that it's an essential in our lives. Uh, there's a part of us that knows that we were meant to experience joy, or maybe what we often call happiness, but then reality shows us many times how happiness and joy can be elusive at times. You know how I know this? I can say this because uh, I can say that, uh, that, that we need joy, but it's often elusive because of the fact that uh, uh, simply theme parks exist, right? I mean, I, I, don't get me wrong, I'm a big fan of theme parks, but at the same time, let me think about it this way. Uh, a theme park can, can get us to travel hundreds of miles and pay thousands of dollars to have the privilege of waiting in line for 45 minutes for a 45-second ride and to pay $10 for a churro that you would never pay $2 for outside of the park. I mean, think about this. Costco used to have churros for $1.99, and they don't sell them anymore because nobody bought them. And yet we'll go to Disneyland and spend 10 bucks on a churro just to have the experience of walking around with a churro at Disneyland, right? And then, of course, they have the audacity, and we fall for it, to call it the happiest place on earth, right? The place where joy exists like no other place. And again, I'm not against theme parks. Uh, I love theme parks. We actually, as a family, we try to go to a theme park like once a year and take a family trip together. But in the end, what we realize is that the best part about a theme park is the memories that you have with your family, and maybe there's a little bit of an element of escapism. You can be kind of away from the world and inside those walls, almost in a different world to some degree. But to say that that brings happiness or joy, just that experience, um, might be reaching a little bit. And uh, of course, no matter how elusive we know that joy might be, we still chase after it. We still chase after it through experiences, maybe through the accumulation of stuff as our culture reinforces. If you just have the right stuff, if you just have the right experience, if you just do the right things, if you can check all those things off your bucket list, you'll find joy and happiness in the end. But of course, as we know, we get to a place realizing that happiness is not found at the end of those things. It reminds me of a study that was done in Australia a couple of years ago where they asked 120 people to mimic a smile. And their idea was if we can get people to kind of force a smile onto their face for a significant period of time, it might psychologically change their mood and maybe even affect some kind of chemical reaction in their brain. If they can trick their brain into thinking that they're happy, they might actually be happier. 
And in fact, they did this with 120 people. They, they asked them to mimic a smile by holding like a pencil in their mouth. So they weren't actually smiling, but it was actually mimicking the shape of a smile. And what they found is that after, uh, uh, after an extended period of time, actually, of doing this, they did find that psychologically it helped the people to feel a little bit happier, and they were able to measure their serotonin levels so that serotonin, of course, which is the hormone in our brain that reduces depression and depressive feelings, actually heightened in their brain. So technically, they did become happier for a period of time. But of course, as we know, as soon as those serotonin levels return back to normal, as soon as the psychological effect wears off, the joy and the happiness goes away as well. So I've titled this message this morning, A Calling to Joy. And what I mean by that is that God calls us, I believe God calls us to a life of joy. I think we see that in the Bible. And I realize that may be strange given my introduction where I've just kind of defeated the existence of, of real happiness uh, in some ways in our world. But I want to say this morning that, that, that there is an aspect of joy and happiness that God wants us to understand. And I think that distinction between biblical joy and the happiness that we've been talking about so far this morning brings a very important discussion to the table when we're talking about joy because happiness or joy as it's defined in the Bible versus the way that we might often think about happiness is, is distinguished in this way. Biblical joy is presented most often in the Bible as contentment with the idea that real contentment is not dependent on circumstances of life. It's not dependent upon what does or what does not happen to us. And additionally, although, although biblical joy can be expressed in emotion, Obviously, it's not primarily emotion-based. In other words, you can have joy, we might even say, I think, possess joy, even when you're feeling depressed or disillusioned. I think another important distinction to make is that happiness, as we define it typically in our culture and our world, is often self-focused. It's, again, reliant upon using experiences or things or maybe even sometimes people as a means to an end, right? I, I use these experiences, I use these people, I use these things that I have to make me happy in the end. So as long as I'm in my happy place with my people, I'm feeling happy. But as soon as that fades away, the happiness goes with it as well. In contrast, biblical joy is God-focused rather than self-focused. It's able to face all experiences in light of God's character and presence and to enjoy things that we have, experiences that we have in this world, and even people as blessings from God that allows us to enjoy who God is in the midst of those blessings. So they're not used to make us happy. We have contentment, and then we enjoy out of that understanding of who God is. I hope you see that when the Bible talks about joy, it's not saying that there's anything wrong with being happy. Of course, we can be happy, but I hope you also see that the Bible tells us that there is something deeper and there is something more satisfying than mere happiness. I, I think about the way the Apostle Paul expresses this in Philippians chapter 4. He says this as a personal journey. I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In, every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, uh, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. Now think about that for a second. Paul says there's a secret to being content. I mean, what if we could all know that secret? What if we could all kind of live that way? That's one of the ultimate secrets, I think, of life. Understanding what it means to be content no matter what circumstance faces you uh, in your life. And when Paul says every circumstance, we know a little bit from Paul's history that he is literally saying almost every circumstance. Because Paul went through some circumstances, right? If we, if, we know what, if we know the story. He alludes to some of them here, being brought low, right? Being brought low might mean referring to being chased by angry mobs and being beaten and being chased out of a city, literally being beaten and stoned and left for dead. And yet 
he's content. Being brought low might be being poor and hungry, as he says here, and yet he was content in the Lord and in his calling. And being low, being, uh, being low might have referred to being thrown in prison and yet being content. At last count, I think there are hundreds of thousands of self-help books on Amazon, and all of them are trying to answer in some form or fashion this one question, what does it mean to be happy? And yet 2,000 years ago, Paul tells us, here is the secret that I've learned in my journey with Christ. Here is the secret that I've learned is that the secret to being content, or the secret to joy is being content in all circumstances. So the question is, how do we find that kind of contentment? I think one place it starts with is reckoning, is, is having an honest reckoning with the fact that we won't find complete joy from the things that come in this world, at least in the way that we were created to have full joy in God. Of course, that makes sense, right? We're broken people in a broken world. Why would we expect to find complete and whole and utter joy in this world? I think about it in terms of what C.S. Lewis once said in uh, his book, Mere Christianity. He said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Now, if you haven't been with us in our current series on the book of Revelation, one of the, uh, um, I, we have been going through this discussion about how God is displaying his character, particularly through the judgment section of the book of Revelation. If you're wondering how I was going to make the connection between the theme of joy and the book of Revelation, that's where we're going. It looks just like this. We've been talking about the characteristics of God. Um, and one of the things that, 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 that we, we realize and we see in all of this is that the contentment that is supposed to be, that, that we have through Christ is understanding the character of God and understanding the presence of God everywhere and among us. And that's the promise that the book of Revelation holds out for us through judgment, that this judgment is not just removing all the bad things from the earth, but that it's making way for all the very best things to reign on this earth for eternity. So when we talk about something like new creation and the new heavens and the new earth, we look at Revelation chapter 21 and we're told that in Revelation chapter, that, that in the new heavens and new earth, that the radiance of God's glory and his character is so bright and so radiant that there's no need for the sun in that place because his glory and his character is everywhere. That sounds like a place I want to be. Here, just to remind you, here are some of the characteristics of God that we've talked about so far in this series. We have that slide up there, the characteristics of God. We got it? There we go. And it's going to build in there. But as you see, God is sovereign, God is wise, God is... We talked about all these things. Now, as you look at this list, let's go ahead and fill in that entire slide there, uh, Ben. And if we have that entire list in front of us, what we see is that when it comes to biblical joy, it's best to see these characteristics of God as the substance of our joy. I mean, think about this for a minute. I know we've kind of glossed over these in some way, um, but I want us to sit in this for a minute. Think about it. What would it mean for God's goodness, for God's love, for God's righteousness, and for God's justice to be everywhere in this world? Does that sound like a world that you want to live in? And it does, it does to me. I mean, think about it. The fullness of God's love invading this world instead of hatred and division. Goodness everywhere instead of evil and suffering. Righteousness in relationships where people are genuinely good to each other and work for, for one another's benefit. Justice where all things are put back to right. The marginalized and the oppressed can go free and so on and so forth. This is joy that's called out in those situations in response to that kind of a world. And so that, again, is the background, the reason for God's motiva or the motivation for God's judgment actions as we're going to see them again in Revelation 10 as we look at it today. We're going to be in Revelation 10 again, a little bit of a different chapter that we've looked at uh, compared to what we've been looking at over the past couple weeks. What we're going to see here is basically a short vision 
that is a bit of like a parenthesis between judgments. So we've been in the middle of the trumpet judgments. We've gone through the first six, and then we're going to come across this vision here in Revelation chapter 10 that is basically an interpretive vision to help us understand what's going on. It's like a pause in the action, if you will, and we're going to see that here communicated in what John sees in Revelation chapter 10. So Revelation chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 1, and we'll continue through the chapter. And John says this about the vision that he sees. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and all that is in it, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey." And as I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it, it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Now, of course, if you've been with us through this series or you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you may have noticed a pattern in these parenthetical visions. Right? With, the, with the first seven seals, the first seven seal judgments that we saw a couple of chapters ago, we saw the first six seals break, and then there was kind of a vision like this, a parenthetical vision in Revelation 7, where we saw the throne room of those who were sealed before the Lamb. And just in that case, this case happens as well. After the six trumpets are blown, the first six, between the sixth and the seventh, there's another parenthetical vision, and we won't see the seventh trumpet until chapter 11 in a couple of weeks. But what we see here, or, or actually, it, it'll happen next year in January. Um, but as we, what we see here is this kind of break in the action, and what's happening is that this vision is given to us to help us interpret so far what's going on. And I think just as that vision happens at the end of the sixth seal, and it happens at the end of the sixth trumpet, these things are being connected to show us something that happens in terms of time and history as well. In other words, this, that the first six judgments are designed to be representative of things that are happening right now during the church age, while the seventh judgment, both the seal and the trumpet, are uh, representative of the final judgment that's yet to come. It is coming at some point in the future. And so here's why this is important for us to understand. Of course, it, it defines who we are right now in the church age, but it also orients all of these judgments according to the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. In other words, this way, when we talk about um, these things like the end times, right? the Bible even helps us understand the distinction here. What the Bible's setting us all up for is that the turning point event in human history, the turning point event in the redemptive plan of God is the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. It all hinges on that, that, that event right there, kind of joined together, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. 
that death, resurrection, and ascension actually begins what we call the end times. Right? We talk about the fact that oh, Revelation is about the end times. It certainly is about the end times. But when the Bible talks about the end times, the Bible is talking about what happens after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. In other words, the new creation reality. In fact, if we dive a little bit deeper into this, the word end itself is actually taken from the word or interpreted from the word telos in the Greek. The word telos doesn't mean end in the sense that like nothing ceases to exist afterwards and it's gloom and doom and destruction. The word end actually means in this case, telos, goal, aim, or purpose. And so if we're asking ourselves, like, what is it that is the goal, aim, and purpose of all of this? What we're seeing is that the end times start with the resurrection and ascension of Jesus that starts this new creation reality, which is pushing us towards the goal and the end of it all, which is the new creation on this earth, new heavens and new earth. So when did the end times start? When did the goal, the telos time start? At the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, which made this possible. And I think this is an important distinction for us to make. Uh, and Paul uh, communicates it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he talks about the importance and all that the new creation started in referring to Jesus as the first fruits. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 19 through 24, he says, If in Christ we hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in its own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Notice again in verse 24, then comes the end, then comes the, you can substitute the word goal or aim or purpose, then comes the end goal when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, every rule and every authority and every power. And if we're talking about what are the judgments of Revelation, this is very Revelation-like in verse 24, that Jesus is judging every rule and every authority and every power, and we're going to see that play out for us in the next several chapters of Revelation. And so what's happening here is that this is making way for the end goal, which is the telos in the end. Now notice how closely this passage very much sums up the story of the book of Revelation, bringing us to this place of new creation and goal. And I think this is part of what this vision is presenting to us, because when we look a little closer at John's vision in Revelation chapter 10, we notice a few things. The first thing is that John sees another angel which is different from the angels that he's seen before. It's different from the angels who are blowing the trumpets. He sees this angel actually come out of the clouds, he says, and he describes it with some important imagery that we might notice is associated with a previous place in Revelation, most notably Revelation 4 and 5, where we have the throne visions of God and the throne vision of Jesus, right? The theophany and the Christophany, as we called it. But then what we see, and then, and then so when we see this de deliberate connection here, what we see is this angel is deliberately connected to divinity in some way. It's not to say that this angel himself is divine, but that he represents divinity in his appearance and even in the actions that he takes in this vision. So to begin with, the angel comes out of heaven. He's described as being mighty with a great voice. John says he's wrapped in a cloud, which represents typically divinity, right? Coming from the clouds, coming from the place where God is. 
and then also that he has a rainbow around his head. We saw the rainbow imagery back in Revelation chapter 4 around the throne of God, and we talked about the rainbow represents the faithfulness of God, the covenant faithfulness of God going all the way back to Noah, right? That in the Bible, the rainbow uh, represents that in particular, God's covenant faithfulness. The angel is then described as having a face shining like the sun. Of course, in several places in Scripture, right, going all the way back to Moses, when Moses met with God in the tabernacle face to face, we know that Moses would come out and his face would shine as a representation that he had been with God. The sun, the countenance, or the shining countenance like the sun represents the very presence of God. We see it in the transfiguration of Jesus in the Gospels, all throughout Scripture that represents, and of course in Revelation 21 as well. And so, we see that happening, and then we get to this place to round out the description. John sees this angel as having pillars of fire as legs. Now, again, where have we seen pillars of fire before in Scripture? Go all the way back to the Exodus. We see God's provision, God's protection for the Israelites being led by a pillar of fire in the wilderness. And so we've got all these images, and it seems clear that just from these initial descriptions that this angel is strongly representing the imminent presence of God in what he's doing. And when you add all of that to when you step back, what you see is also a strong connection to this figure that's presented to us in Daniel chapter 11, when Daniel has a vision and he sees this figure that looks like the Son of Man, right? You connect that imagery to this imagery, you see that it's very similar. And the conclusion that we get to is that, I think, I think the conclusion that we should get to is that this angel represents Jesus, represents the ministry and the work of Jesus, represents the authority of Jesus, that Jesus is given as a result of his death resurrection, and ascension. And because of that, then the angel demonstrates the authority that we see which follows here. And as this message, we see first of all that, um, that the angel places his foot, his left foot, in the sea and his right foot on the land, which represents authority, right? It's like if anyone were to put your foot in an area, it's a way of like kind of staking claim to that territory or that area. And so the angel puts his foot on the land and on the sea, he's staking claim to all that is in creation and all that's on on the earth and so as we and so this image represents jesus we see jesus the strong connection between jesus's authority jesus's ministry on earth and as john kind of progresses through this vision we see also what john sees the angel do in this the angel also speaks with this loud voice of a lion now i don't know if you've ever been uh, close to a lion when he has the deep guttural roar, when he does his full roar. Have you ever been in an experience like that? Um, I, uh, the closest I can say I've been to is at the zoo, and I'm not even sure this was like the full like roar of a lion, um, but I heard it one time, and I was like, uh, not even, I was like by the lion den. I wasn't even really by where they keep the lions. I was kind of down the road a little bit. If you've been to the Phoenix Zoo, it's kind of in that area, but I hear this roar, right, and this loud roar, and it was literally something that shook the ground and the concrete, and you could feel it like all the way through your bones. It's a startling thing, and I'm not even sure that that was the full roar, and it scared me, and the lion's like, I can't even see the lion. He's like 500 yards down the road, and he's separated by this huge fence, and you know, there's no possible way he could ever pounce on me or anything like that, but it still scared me just hearing that roar. Now, imagine what that might be like in the wild if you were to hear that roar from like behind a bush somewhere. You know, and, and, and so the, the, the representation of the lion and his roar establishes him as the authoritative voice. We know that uh, the part of what establishes the lion as the apex predator is his roar, right? We learned that from Lion King, of course, right? Simba practicing his roar, right? So that he could be king. 
and, 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 when you add, and when you add the significance of a lion in Scripture to this, right, going all the way, again, back to Revelation chapter 5, when the elders look at Jesus and they proclaim him as the Lion of Judah, what you see is this voice that comes with full authority, the rumblings of which kind of stop us in our tracks, and that come from the throne, the very throne of God. And so what you really have here is a full representation of the redemptive work of Jesus by his death, resurrection, and ascension. It all comes back to what Jesus has done and what Jesus has said. And his authority comes from the fact that he is now the one who has ascended to the right hand of the Father and rules over all creation, bringing the possibility of redemption through his work on the cross, the resurrection, and now being ascended to the right hand of the Father. And I think this also fits within the scroll motifs here too, right? We have the larger scroll in in Revelation chapter 5. We saw the big scroll that we said represented the redemptive plan of God, which I think is pretty accurate. It can represent scripture, just in general, the the redemptive plan of God. We have the little scroll here that that seems to be calling our mind back to the larger scroll, but is also smaller. And I think what we can say is that smaller scroll is a subset of the redemptive plan of God. It's the core of the redemptive plan of God. We might call this the gospel or the good news of Jesus. That's what the smaller book seems to represent. Which brings us then to a focus on John in this passage. Because the angel then says that this is going to be sweet, but it's also going to be bitter as he tells John to eat it. Right? And, and so the angel and the little scroll are obviously the focus of this vision, but John is actually actively involved for the first time in a vision in the book of Revelation. To this point, John has been basically a bystander that's been told to just kind of write what he sees. This is the first time we see John step into a vision where he is an active participant and part of the vision. And what he does, of course, is eat this small book, which represents the gospel. And what's actually happening here is that John is told to engage with the ministry of the gospel, which is both sweet and bitter. We'll talk about why that is for a minute, but what, in a minute. But what's actually happening here is that John is being recommissioned in line with the same mission that was given back to the disciples in Matthew chapter 28 that we call the Great Commission, that's given again in Acts chapter 1 before Jesus ascends, that we would make disciples, that we would go out and make disciples with the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. That's my paraphrase of those two things. But and as the church today, as that relates to us, the general mission is much the same, to go out with this good news of great joy into all the world for all people. Just as Jesus was the one to take the scroll originally, to make it possible for the redemptive plan of God to be unveiled and to be enacted in the world, he now sends his church with the same mission under the guidance and power of the Holy Spirit. And this is the sweetness, by the way, of the joy of the gospel. This is what this is referring to. There's a sweetness in this. That in general, this book is sweet. And it's out of that sweetness, that joy, that our mission springs. Remember the words from Luke chapter 2 that we read earlier at the beginning of the service in our Advent reading. The angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. At its core, this message of Jesus is good news of great joy for all people because it removes fear. Fear of judgment, fear of brokenness, fear of disease, fear of pain, fear of evil, fear of death. So it is sweet. There is nothing sweeter, and it's the source of our joy. Of course, just like on that hillside with the shepherds, that message of great joy was not just for them, but as the angel said to the shepherds, uh, this is to be for all people. 
And in Revelation chapter 10, the same commissioning is given to John. The message is for many peoples and nations and languages and kings to go out into the world with. And John certainly has a distinct calling as a messenger in this case, right? That reference to the seven thunders seems to be his own private thing with God that he's told not to write down. So there's a, a specific calling that, and commissioning that John has. But in a large picture perspective, that missional gospel calling is supposed to be for us as well. It's continued into us as the church. And what we realize is that this message that we take out to the world, of course, is itself full of, is sweet and full of joy. But of course, because people will inevitably reject it, and because sin and evil and idolatry must be judged, that message also has a bitterness to it. Although we aren't told exactly what this bitterness is in this case, we can assume that given the context so far in the book of Revelation and what we know about what's going on in the background, this bitterness comes from an opposition to God's purposes, which is a big theme that's about to come up over the next several chapters. We're going to see these references to the dragon and the beast that oppose God's salvation in the world. We could also say that we see the bitterness happening in terms of the persecution of the first century church, which John was a part of. We could also say that the bitterness is the judgment of those who ignore the good news or flat out reject it or oppose it. Again, the message of the gospel is, pow is the power and wisdom of God for those of us who believe it, but for, those of us, but for those who don't, it's foolishness. It's foolishness to them. And their reaction to the gospel actually reveals the true nature of their hearts. And this message of the gospel is sweet, but it becomes bitter and when it's by, digested by the world because along with the promises of the gospel are the realities of judgment, which we've talked about last week, are difficult to swallow at times, especially when you see it with so much detail and so much ferocity in the book of Revelation. For people who know the joy of Christ, seeing the judgments here in the book of Revelation should have an effect as a result of enlarging our, compa our compassion for those who don't know this great and joyful message. If we're taking this down to a level of how does this apply for us, I think that bitterness that kind of turns our stomach and realizing that there, is, there, there are no greater stakes at play than what we see here happening in this chapter or, or, or in, this, in this book. And it should, as a result, increase our, our compassion. You know that the word compassion in the Bible comes from a word that means to feel from the stomach, to kind of connect and to love and to have concern really from the depths of your gut. I think about how that lines up ironically or maybe not so ironically, maybe intentionally, about the bitterness in John's own stomach that he feels as he digests this. I think about how Jesus said that, how Scripture tells us that Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem and saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd and he had compassion on them. It moved him from his, so deep it moved him from his gut. This is a deep biblical word that means it moves us from inside of who we are in a way that is undeniable. And as I think about how this all comes together, I think about how, the, how high the stakes are in this book, which should cause us as the church, as God's commissioned people, to constantly consider how we are engaging in the world. I think this is one of the big takeaways of this. John gets his recommissioning, but this commissioning is, again, another assertion, another highlighting, another underlining of the importance of the mission of the church in the world. And the question that I think we should ask is, do we look like Jesus in the way that we live? It's a simple diagnostic question. Um, I think it's easy for us to say yes to that out of reaction. But I would like us to, I, I think that's an important question for us to really sit with. And we're going to revisit this question throughout the book of Revelation as we continue. 
we got to ask ourselves, as the church, and this is, you know, as North Bible Church, but also just as the church in general, as the world looks at us and how we engage and how we respond, even maybe especially to those who disagree with us, do we look like Jesus in the way that we respond? I don't think that's a question that we just answer once and check it off a list, but it's something that we should continually be asking ourselves. How are we reacting to the world around us? Do do our reactions display faithfully who Jesus is? Does it display our joy, our contentment in him? Again, not that we're like fake happy people who are overbearing in our sweetness, so to speak, but are we people who display the freedom of joy in, of the joy of Jesus? The freedom of the joy of Jesus. And if you're wondering what that looks like, I think Tim Keller describes this well. If you're keeping score at home, that's three weeks in a row that I have a Tim Keller quote, so we're trying to keep the streak going. I really didn't intend on using this. He just tweeted it out this week, and I was like, man, this just fits too well. But we're talking about the freedom of the joy of Jesus. He says this, while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. So the joy of Jesus frees us as a result from things like hatred and fear which is often so pervasive in our culture, unfortunately has become way too common in the church as well. Instead, the joy that Jesus gives us frees us up because we know that the love and forgiveness of God is real so that we can love and forgive others as well. We know that the joy of Jesus allows us to be content with his plans and promises in, this, in his kingdom eternally. So we don't have to fear about what we might lose or what might be taken from us in this world because we are content and we have freedom of the joy of Jesus in his kingdom. I want to close with this story. Uh, I was at a uh, performance yesterday at my my kids school. Two of my kids go to the school so there's kind of two different performances and it's called uh, it was called the Winter Showcase, right? The Winter Showcase is essentially what when I was growing up it was called a Christmas performance, right? But it's now called a, a Winter Showcase and so we go and we're, and we're there and, and part of this is like our kids are singing songs as part of a choir and, and all that kind of thing and um, and, and so, like, a couple of the first songs were Jingle Bells and um, uh, The Best Time of the Year or something like that. I don't know the title of that, but you know what I'm talking about. It's The Best Time of the Year, or it's beginning to look a lot like, and instead of Christmas, it was winter break. And so uh, that was kind of a theme throughout, right, where they're singing all these songs, and the word Christmas was replaced with winter or winter break. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, this is great. I, li- I appreciate all the work they put into it. But I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> and I'm just, this is a personal feeling. I just start to get sad. I'm like, ah, oh, man. Like, you know, I get sad, a little irritated, if I'm honest, a little bit annoyed. And I'm like, why? Like, they, they won't say the word Christmas at all. It's either winter or winter break that they were substituting. And so I'm sitting there. And it wasn't like this whole thing where I'm like, they're taking Jesus out of Christmas. I mean, these were commercialized Christmas songs. And like they're singing Silent Night or Joy to the World and taking Jesus out of it. They're singing commercialized Christmas songs. But the word Christmas was missing. So I'm sitting there like, oh, this is sad because I'm used to these songs that I'm comfortable with. And then it occurred to me as I'm wrestling with this that my kids go to a very diverse school. In fact, a lot of the students, most of the students are, um, are either Asian or they're from India or they're from the Middle East. Like, uh, you know, in some cases they've come straight over. The kids have, and in many cases just their parents were first generation. And so, you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, there's probably a lot of people who don't even know about Christmas or celebrate Christmas, and that's, that's kind of what they're doing. But I'm still upset about it. I'm still kind of sad, if I'm honest, a little bit annoyed. And and I'm sitting there, and as I'm dealing with all my feelings about this, um, I've got my hand kind of on the back of the, the, the chair, and I feel a tap 
uh, from behind. And I look, I look behind me, and it's this little girl, this little toddler. And uh, she has the biggest smile on her face, and her big brown eyes are open. And, and, you know, just like only a toddler can do, right? So much joy in her face, right? Uh, and, and, and I look at her, I start smiling, and I wave at her, and she, she laughs. And then I hear a laugh from behind her, and it's her mom. Her mom's laughing as she's watching us kind of I- interact. And I look back at her mom, and, and her mom is Muslim. She's got, you know, uh, full Muslim head covering on. And, and we, we look at each other, and we laugh. We make eye contact and laugh about her beautiful uh, little daughter. And, uh, and I go back to uh, the singing of the song, and um, I'm still struggling with all of my big emotions, right, and frustrations. And it's in that moment that God reminds me, um, God reminds me in that moment that Look, I love people more than I love your comfort in your Christmas song. I love people more than I love your preference for what this should look like. And it's in that moment that I was so thankful for God speaking to me and helping me to realize this. And look, I don't know how you would react in that situation, but what I realized is that I was so consumed with myself and my preferences and my comfort level that I totally missed the fact that the mission of God was all around me. Yeah, there are people all around us in our community, in our, in our school community, who don't know what Christmas is all about, and they don't know anything about Jesus. And I can get frustrated because my situation doesn't look the same, because there are different cultures that are coming into this same community and kind of shaking things up. Or I can see it as an opportunity where God has brought the nations with an opportunity to hear the gospel, an opportunity to see the joy of Jesus in the way that I respond. And look, I know that there's a lot of hand-wringing among Christians right now about an angst about what are the so-called culture wars. And I believe there's a lot that we should, you know, certainly engage with and certainly preserve, especially some of the bigger ideas. But I will say this, uh, there, as Christians who have been called to love the world, that is around us. We need to be very careful about something that is called a war that is aimed at those whom God has called us to love and God has called us to reach. Be careful about what that does to our hearts because look, here's something that hit me as well is that God never out, Jesus never outsourced the mission to that school, to, the, to corporate America, to the government. God gave the mission to the church. And I think sometimes, due to our comfort level or due to our inattention to these things, maybe we forget at times, right? It's much easier to outsource that mission somewhere else than to live it out as the church ourselves. And so I think one of the places to start is to return to the joy and the contentment that we have in the gospel. To realize that, you know, if we are content in Christ, there is nothing that we need to fear being taken from us in this world, because even if our very lives are taken from us, we still have the inheritance of Christ. We have his kingdom. Even uh, in the way that uh, things may change around us, we still have this message of the joy of Christ in us in terms of how we live and how we speak towards those around us. And hopefully that contentment results in us being people who represent more fully a joyous people who have a joyous message, who have this great news of great joy to give to the world. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you this morning celebrating the Advent season, and celebrating in particular joy, which we have talked about is so 
important and so central to how you have made us to enjoy you. Um, Lord, I, I pray that we would see this mission, this gospel calling, what you call us to, just what the angels were doing there. They modeled it so wonderfully in Luke chapter 2. We come with a good message, a, with good news of great joy for all the people. I pray that if we take one thing out of this as we see the recommissioning of your gospel work that is both sweet, certainly the message starts out sweet, in its, in its entirety it is sweet, but Lord, uh, when it's internalized and when it's brought to the world, it can turn bitter in places. And so we ask, Lord, that you would, um, by that kind of discontent that we feel about the bitterness of, of the way things are, that you would enlarge our, compa- our compassion. You would lo- enlarge our joy and enlarge our contentment so that we have more of a capacity for compassion. And, uh, and Father, that in the end, that we would be people who understand that we have been given the calling, and the joyful calling at that. This is not burdensome, or this is an opportunity to proclaim good news of great joy to all the people. So Lord, would you fill us with that? Would you direct us by that? And would you guard our hearts and help us to see with discernment? To continue to ask that question, wait a minute, are we looking like Jesus in the way that we do this? Are we looking like Jesus in the way that we respond? That we can stand for truth, but we can show grace and mercy all at the same time. Those two things are not competing ideals, but they work together in the same. And so we thank you, Lord, for your goodness towards us. We thank you that we can have joy and contentment in Jesus because of his death, resurrection, and ascension, which has sealed our inheritance for eternity. We pray these things in his name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. So hopefully now we are, uh, I don't know, what day is it, the 12th? 12th, we're almost halfway in this month to Christmas. Hopefully you're starting to get into the Christmas spirit a little bit. One of the ways that we are celebrating Advent here at North Bible Church is we have these simple little postcards available. Uh, One of our themes for Advent, or at least our kind of title theme here, is The Weary World Rejoices. Um, I said that without just, with actual diction there. Like I was able to actually say the whole thing. Sometimes it weary world, but weary world rejoices, which is one of my favorite lines from my favorite Christmas hymn, if you want to call it that, O Holy Night. And uh, we realize that that connects a lot to where we're at right now. We live in a world that is really weary for a lot of different reasons. And so we've kind of, we printed out these postcards really free of charge for you to use. Um, If you have a neighbor or just a friend or a family member that you feel like would benefit from like a handwritten note that just says, I just want to encourage you, whatever it may be. We have Christmas cards, but in a lot of cases, those can be impersonal. This is more of a personal thing where you're just encouraging someone. It may be a friend, a relative. It may be a, a family member. It may be somebody just within the church. And if you want to write that, that, that uh, note out, that handwritten note on this card, and if you address the envelopes that are located there as well, this is over in the cafe, by the way. There's a table out there with these things on them. We will make sure that we 
mail that for you, or you, of course you can take it with you and mail it yourself, either way. Or if it's someone in the church, you can just hand it to them this morning. But this is one of those ways that we wanted to just have an opportunity to respond to this season and to encourage somebody and to you know, spread a little bit of joy in this way. So uh, these are free. You can use as many as you want. Take as many as you want. Um, um, but only, if, of course, if you're going to use them. Don't just hoard a bunch of them. We don't have an endless supply of them. But if you're going to use like four or five and you know you're going to write on those, you can take them with you if you need to, okay? So uh, thank you for being here. Great to see all of you here. We want to remind you that as we leave this morning, uh, we have uh, an opportunity for you to join with us in prayer in a couple different ways. One, we have our prayer partners. The Custers are over here ready to pray for you if you need any prayer as you leave this morning. And also we have our prayer cards that are located on the table with the cross on them in the back as you leave this morning. If you want to write down one of your prayer requests or a couple prayer requests, uh, this is something that uh, we take very seriously, the opportunity to join with you and to pray with you. Uh, so if you take those cards and write it out, we're going to make sure it gets to the right people that can be praying with you and have the opportunity to pray with you. So if you can take those cards, put them in the offering stands after you've filled them out as you leave this morning, we'll make sure that they get to the right place. All right? Great to see you all this morning. Love you guys. Have a great week. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.